Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 44, The Guns of Galicia. On the 4th of June, 1916, Habsburg senior staff, diplomats, and politicians converged on army headquarters at Teschen for an important pronouncement. Situated on the banks of the Olsa River, some 320 kilometers east of Vienna, near the Polish-Czech border, Teschen was the beating heart of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Thrust into the extreme north of Upper Silesia, the city had an ancient frontier character. Little had changed there for centuries, and if you were to take a stroll down its main thoroughfare, admiring its ancient buildings and stone facades, the war raging in East Europe could not have been further away. The city was nevertheless the symbol of Habsburg power and culture. Its heritage can be traced back to 1810. Local legend tells the story of three Silesian dukes, who after spending years apart, chose to reunite at a spring by the riverbank. The dukes were so taken by the surrounding country that they decided to settle there, naming the area Teschen for We Rejoice. Over the centuries since its founding, Teschen became the economic nerve center of Silesia. Locals from the various provinces traveled to the city to sell their wares and hold market. It slowly became one of the most diverse cities in the region, boasting a population made up of Poles, Germans, Czechs, Hungarians, and Slovaks. With the ascension of the Austrians and formation of the dual monarchy in 1867, Teschen had come to symbolize the romantic tranquility of Habsburg rule. A vast assortment of cultures, customs, and languages bound together in harmony under the guidance of a Viennese king. During the sunny afternoon of June the 4th, Teschen would again live up to its name. The day marked the birthday of Archduke Joseph Ferdinand, commander of the Austro-Hungarian 4th Army based in Galicia. Joseph's wife, the Archduchess Isabella, spared no expense in throwing a lavish celebration. The Archduke's uncle, Frederick Ferdinand, was the Duke of Teschen and was happy to lend the city's historic castle with its great hexagonal towers and rotundas, to host the extravaganza. As the invitees arrived, they moved past a formation of imperial guards and made their way inside to the sounds of trumpets and brass. From there, they mingled with one another. Representatives from Budapest, the foreign minister, and the duke himself were all on deck to greet. Refreshments were offered, and if they so pleased, the guests could take to the fresh air and observe the breathtaking view from the castle's ramparts. A charming, panoramic view of the surrounding valley where the only sound was the echo of the river lapping the rocks below. Indeed, the war in the east could not have been further away. But if the celebration at Teschen represented everything good and noble about the dual monarchy, it also reflected the torpid indifference which had dogged it since 1914. Teschen was miles from the nearest battlefield, nestled into a picturesque valley that had been spared war's fury. The elite class, which now toasted and congratulated an absentee army commander, Well, they represented the uninspired leadership, the status quo, if you will, which so far had not won the Habsburg army any favors. Perhaps that sounds a little harsh, maybe a bit unfair, but you'd be hard-pressed to think of another great power whose wartime record was worse. The poor showing of the Austro-Hungarian army can be pinned on one man, the chief of staff, Konrad von Hutzendorf. Although it was Joseph's party, it was Konrad who demanded the most attention. He arrived at the castle just before noon, and was immediately swamped by the other guests, eager to hear from the man who had led the nation to war two years earlier. He was asked about a variety of issues, most of which he had no qualification to answer. He toasted the German fleet for their success at Jutland, and offered encouraging words for Falkenhayn, whose troops were about to retake the offensive at Verdun. 
Conrad also found time to discuss his pet project, the campaign in Trentino. He told the curious guests that although Italian defense had stiffened, it was too little too late. Italy would soon be brought to heel, and Habsburg troops would be sipping Venetian wine before season's end. Conrad was in high spirits. Although the only success he could boast was the quick conquest of Montenegro 20 months earlier, the Central Powers were pressing on all fronts, and things looked promising. He was eager to look ahead and begin drafting the inevitable peace terms. Three days prior, he had met with the ailing Emperor Franz Joseph in Vienna. Now at 86 years of age, 68 of which were spent on the Habsburg throne, Emperor Joseph was concerned about the Empire's future. He knew he would not be around forever, and wanted to know, or at least be assured, that the state would not crumble before his deathbed. On June the 1st, Conrad assured him that his optimism was well-founded. The dual monarchy had been beaten and had bled. Casualties had been tremendous, and the economic strain had pushed her to the limit. But, Conrad assured, she would emerge stronger and more unified than ever before. House Habsburg would survive and flourish in a Germanic Europe. Joseph and Conrad departed on high spirits, both satisfied with what they had heard. But what neither of them knew was that in less than two weeks, Austria-Hungary's time as a great power would come to an end. 614 kilometers east of Teschen, among the battle-scarred fields of Galicia, the army of General Alexei Brusilov made their final preparations. Beginning in May, the Russians were displaying obvious signs of impending attack. Brusilov had sapped his lines forward, and Russian airplanes buzzed about the air morning, noon, and night, photographing Habsburg artillery and supply depots. Brusilov's men were well-trained and confident. They knew their responsibilities down to a T, and were eager to show what they could do. But in a potentially tectonic what-if scenario, the attack was nearly scrapped at the last minute. As we discussed last week, Brusilov's attack was to be auxiliary only. The main thrust was to take place a few days later further north, with the army groups of Alexei Evert and Kuropatkin striking into Lithuania. Brusilov was suspect of his colleague's sincerity, and ten days earlier received confirmation. Evert and Kuropatkin were nowhere near ready. At the 11th hour, they had switched objectives, canning their plans for Lithuania and choosing to attack near the marshes of Pinsk in modern-day Belarus, over 350 kilometers south of the original objective. This last-minute change of plans threatened the entire operation. With the main thrust postponed for the foreseeable future, Brusilov now faced a delicate situation, either attack without the guarantee of support, or delay until the northern armies were ready. Choosing to delay meant exposing his army to Austrian attacks, or even worse, losing the confidence of the men he had spent months training and preparing. Because he was smarter than the rest of Stavka put together, Brusilov knew there was no choice but to press forward. But the notion of being left in the lurch made him seethe. The Russian general did not mince words. After granting Everett and Kuropatkin a 10-day reprieve, Alexeyev pressed Brusilov to delay as well. But the chief of staff found the general unwilling to listen. Out of desperation, Alexeyev tried to trick Brusilov into thinking that the order had come from the Tsar himself. But Brusilov, well aware of Nicholas's indecisiveness, replied that he would delay only if the Tsar told him personally. Alexeyev could only respond that the Tsar had gone to bed. It was not about to wake him to repeat the order. Brusilov stood his ground, and Alexeyev eventually gave in, signing off the conversation with a sympathetic warning. God be with you, he said. Act according to your own judgment. I will inform the Tsar of our conversation in the morning. This exchange between the two officers took place on the evening of June the 3rd, 
less than 12 hours before the Russian barrage was due to begin. Before getting started, I just want to point out that we'll be tackling Brusilov's venture the same way we have with Verdun, jumping in and out of it as events develop elsewhere. This episode will focus on the opening phase from June the 4th to about the 28th. Then we'll be coming back to it a few episodes later, once the Battle of the Somme gets underway. To fully understand the Brusilov offensive, it's good to keep two key points in mind. The first was that it was never designed to be a decisive engagement. Unlike, say, the Dardanelles, Verdun, or the upcoming Somme campaigns, there was no end goal in place. The planners of those operations thought in terms of breakthroughs and potentially war-deciding victories, but such a grand vision never appeared in Brusilov's mind. His sole objective was to keep the Central Powers occupied while the real attack from Everett and Kuropatkin came in the north. So going forward, don't think of it as a coordinated Russian venture. In fact, even calling it a Russian attack is doing it a bit of disservice. It was really just Brusilov doing his thing, while the rest of Stavka stumbled to keep up. The second thing is that since there was no defined end goal, the offensive was conducted on the fly. Attacks were broadened and then narrowed as circumstances changed, and its momentum shifts from lightning-quick advances to slow attritional slugfests. Several times, Brusilov will halt the advance, take a look to see what's happening elsewhere, and then plunge forward again, which makes it a bit of a chimera compared to the other battles we've seen so far. Essentially, there were no set pieces. Engagements were providence of the local commanders, which gave the operation greater elasticity. Brusilov famously wrote that artillery should be directed the same way as a conductor leads an orchestra. Brusilov will run the Southwest Army Group much in the same fashion. For the first time since May 1915, mobile warfare will emerge again. Although the warning signs were right there in front of them, the Central Powers turned a blind eye. The German general, Alexander von Linsingen, de facto commander of the Galician Front, made his concerns noted, but like Conrad and Falkenhayn, believed there was no imminent danger. The 4th, 1st, 2nd, and 7th Austrian armies, plus the Austro-German mixed Sud Army, were content with their fortifications. Three positions of earthworks, reinforced with wood and buttressed by concrete bunkers and razor wire, made it an imposing obstacle for any army. Carefully positioned machine guns offered enfilading fire from all directions. The defending garrisons, accustomed to the relative calm, enjoyed a supreme sense of confidence. 24 hours prior to commencement, Brusilov assembled his army commanders for one final briefing. The sole objective was simple. Destroy Austro-Hungarian forces. Although some of his staff harbored their doubts, Brusilov spoke confidently, helping to soothe their nerves. The procedure of attack was as follows. 8th Army, directly south of the Pripyat Marshes, under General Kaladin, would carry the main thrust and attack northwest towards the railway hub at Koval. His support consisted of four army corps of 148 battalions and 24 heavy artillery batteries. To the 8th Army's southern flank, General Sakharov's 11th Army would attack in support parallel to the Dniester. And to the extreme south, the 7th and 9th Armies, under General Serbachev and Lechetsky, would attack south of Tarnopol and strike towards Chernowitz near the Romanian border. After a final prayer and words of encouragement, his officers returned to their stations. At 1 o'clock in the morning, on the 4th of June 1916, Brusilov issued the order to commence the attack. The order read, quote, It is time to drive out the dishonorable enemy. All armies on our front are attacking at the same time. I am convinced that our iron armies will win the victory. 
End quote. Three hours later, the guns of Galicia opened with a deafening cannonade. The Russians had amassed a variety of artillery, from light 76mm howitzers to massive British-built 305s, capable of lobbing a 380kg shell at a range of 13 kilometers. Others were loaned from the Japanese, or captured from the Austrians in 1914. His army was by no means the most technologically advanced, but put what it had to good use. The shells crashed into the fortified lines, sending the Austrians underground. As they expected, their shelters held. Russian gunners were ordered to take a slow cadence. It was not the hurricane bombardment seen at Lake Narach or Gorlitsi Tarnov. Austrian officers, shouting over the shrieks of falling projectiles, assured their men that this was not an attack barrage. It was not heavy enough to shatter the lines or cause significant damage. The Austrians, although besides themselves with fear, held out. Then, after about an hour, the guns fell silent, and a calm settled along the front. Habsburg officers blew their whistles, and men stormed into forward positions awaiting the attack. Linsingen had guessed the Russian plan. He expected the demonstration, as he coined it, to be a disorganized mess and told his army officers to husband the reserves for the eventual counterattack. From the Russian lines, there was little movement. Small patrols were sent out to assess the damage, but were instantly met with hand grenades and rifle fire. Austrian artillery, that hitherto lay silent, responded to the specters moving about the dust. But the patrols had done their duty. Damage assessments were made, and recommendations to artillery spotters were recorded. It was all an ingenious trap set by Brusilov. The Austrians had been drawn from their shelters, and their gunners exposed. At 6 a.m., the Russian batteries resumed the barrage. This time it was fast and deadly accurate. It hit the Austrians like a freight train. 18-centimeter howitzers did most of the damage. Thick clouds of smoke and dust were thrown into the air. Forests were shot to splinters, and within minutes, churned-up earth and debris had thickened the air into an impenetrable curtain. Men caught in the forward trenches were eviscerated. The worst hit was the Austrian 7th Army near Chernowitz. Having lost his best troops to the campaign in Trentino, the local commander was forced to rely on raw, untested recruits. In a cruel twist of irony, it was the well-constructed bunkers which proved a death trap for many. They were not built to accommodate such a large contingent. Packed like sardines elbow to elbow, the troops could do little but hope a direct hit did not shatter the roof. Crammed out the doorway, men on the threshold were showered by the limbs and trunks of those caught in the open. But the guns kept firing, and the shells kept landing. For six hours, the firestorm continued. At noon, the guns lifted for a second time, and this time, the attack was real. The battle cry roared from the Russians, and the great mass of infantry surged forward. If the artillery failed to paralyze the Austrians, then the swiftness of the advance certainly succeeded. As we discussed, the Russians spent weeks preparing. Their sapper trenches were dug to within 100 meters of the Austrian lines. When the order to jump arrived, Russian troops stormed across no man's land before the defenders could retake their posts. It was here when the Austrians lost all control. The Russian advance was so quick, owing to the preservation of the ground, a la the bite-and-hold technique, that whole Habsburg companies were captured in their dugouts. Even those who made it out of the cellars often bumped into Russian infantry, making their way through the networks. A direct consequence of all this was that the Austrian army commanders had no idea what was happening. Incoming information was contradictory and nonsensical. Some units reported they were holding the line, only to show up miles behind where they were reported to be. 
Other reports used words like organized and concentrated to describe the Russian advance. This, of course, only added to the doubt and confusion. A labyrinth of information was flooding in, and Linsingen found the only order he could give was for all troops to stand their ground until a clearer picture arrived. At separate intervals, sometimes only one or two hours apart, Brusilov's Southwest Army Group pushed forward. The 350-kilometer front from the Pripyat to Chernowitz was shredded by artillery fire while infantry attempted to punch through. For about an hour, this continued. But just after 1 p.m., the levee finally broke. Brusilov had crafted a masterpiece. His order to attack across the entire front meant his flanks were protected, allowing him to place more troops in the vanguard. This proved too much for Linsingen and Co. to handle. They were unable to deploy reinforcements effectively, since a major attack in one sector was followed by another. Linsingen delayed sending in the reserves. He was not about to squander his limited resources by banishing them to the unknown. As the Austrian lines buckled, Linsingen dispatched an urgent telegram to Conrad, which found the chief of staff over an hour later. Back at Teschen, Conrad had just sat down to a bridge match when a staff officer pulled him aside with the news. Conrad was unconvinced. In fact, he was more agitated about being pulled from his game than anything else. He told the aide that the situation in Galicia was not serious. He acknowledged that the Russians were attacking, but assured it would cost a few hundred yards at the most. Meanwhile, back in Galicia, the Austrian commanders were in an absolute panic. Abandoning Linsingen's advice, army commanders were throwing everything they could against the Russian sledgehammer. In some sectors, it worked. The 1st, 2nd, and a suit army, positioned north-south along the rail line to Lemberg, at the center of the advance, had managed to uphold their front's integrity. Sakharov's 11th and Serbachev's 7th armies had been pinned down in the fields by steady artillery, which had been redrawn to the heights behind the Striper River. But this holding action proved only temporary. Elsewhere, the Russian infantry kept coming. Brusilov made use of some unorthodox tactics. Instead of keeping infantry in attack patterns, he hid reserves in nearby woods and marshes. Thousands of infantry, obscured by reeds and overgrowth, protected from prying eyes, crept forward. Sounding the Russian battle cry, this next wave hit the breach. To the terrified and shell-shocked Austrians, the Russians seemed to materialize from thin air. Like a ship in a tumultuous sea, the Austrians buckled and crashed. Then, at the extreme south of the line, they could hold no longer. The line snapped, and the Russians plunged forward. Units of Lechetsky's 9th Army achieved a breakthrough just before 1 o'clock that afternoon. The raw, untested recruits manning the line turned and fled in the face of the Russian advance. Although the opposing armies were near parity, 15 Austrian divisions against 14 Russian, it was the frayed nerves of the Austrians which led to collapse. Lechetsky had dung sapper trenches to within 100 paces of the enemy line, and had chosen his attack paths effectively, using the local ravines to protect the troops against enfilading fire. When the spearhead of three divisions hit the breach, the Habsburg troops, many of which were Slavs themselves, offered little resistance. To say that the Austrians dissolved would not be an understatement. As Olger Herwig described it, the Austrian positions crumbled like a pastry shell. Entire divisions were surrounded and captured. The Austrian 79th Division lost 4,600 men from 5,200, in addition to at least a third of their total artillery. Once a foothold was achieved, on Brusilov's orders, Lechetsky brought in the attacks. Reserves were pumped in steadily. As the vanguard plunged westward, tertiary attacks hit the flanks, which rolled the Austrian lines north-south. 
By 1.30 p.m. on June the 4th, a 3.5-kilometer gap was torn in the Habsburg line. The commander of the 7th Army tried to plug the gap with reserves, but the Russian advance was so quick that they were outflanked by the time they arrived. In this regard, the Russians were aided tremendously by the lack of rail lines in the area. Those that were in service ran north-south instead of east-west. Essentially, Lachetsky had managed to cross the Austrian T before reinforcements could arrive. Lachetsky would continue to press for the remainder of the day with great results. By the evening of June 4th, they had advanced 5 kilometers in just under 6 hours, forcing the Austrians to pull back to the southern bank of the Prut River. As a comparison, the lines at Verdun had fluctuated just 3 kilometers in over 4 months. The breakthrough in the south punched a hole in the Habsburg bucket. Over 15,000 troops fell into Russian captivity over the next two days of fighting. Brusilov encouraged Lachetsky to continue, and on June the 7th, captured another 7,000 men who met the Russians with white flags. However, Brusilov stuck to the game plan. Not to be overenthused by the success, he ordered his army commanders to continue pressing on all fronts. He knew the Austrians would have to redeploy troops south to stop the hemorrhage. All the Russians had to do was keep up the pressure. Brusilov's calculations had been correct. Following the initial breakthrough, a second was achieved in the north, this time against Joseph Ferdinand's 4th Army. The most dramatic success for the Russians occurred near the city of Lutsk. Situated on the Stair River in northwest Ukraine, Lutsk was a strategic city guarding the crucial rail juncture at Koval. It was your typical Galician establishment, protected by thick marsh to the north, it was a low-lying city, dominated by a recently built Lutheran church. Lutsk had changed hands once already, falling to Austro-Hungarian control in late August 1915. Since then, it served as the central command post of Archduke Joseph. Joseph did not attend the party at Teschen. He remained at Lutsk, but was really only there for appearances only. He was well aware of the Russian threat, but had done nothing to prepare for such an eventuality. The already fortified lines near the city would be enough to repel anything they threw at it. Joseph's positions were indeed impressive. They resembled something like a miniature liege, a series of interconnected forts surrounded by complex barbed wire entanglements. But these lines were designed with two major flaws. The first was that Joseph left the front door wide open. Dominating the area were a series of plateaus south of the city. These heights formed a crest which sealed Lusk into a natural pocket. The problem was that the high grass along the ridge provided the ideal cover for artillery and infantry. The Austrians knew this, but made no effort to ensure they went unoccupied. Essentially, the Austrians could see everything at ground level, but had no idea what awaited them over the hills. In the nine-month occupation of the city, Joseph sought no answer to this quandary. Most of the available wood was used to build comfortable officer quarters instead of outposts. The second problem, again like Liege, was that it catered to obsolete tactics. The old Russian army may have struggled to take it, but under Brusilov, it was a minimal challenge. Men of Alexei Kaladin's 8th Army, tasked with leading the attack, were all too familiar with the area. Army leadership had put the skills of the Flying Corps to good use. By the end of April, the Russians had detailed photographs of every gun, wire entanglement, road and rail line leading into and out of the plane. This gave them the distinct advantage of knowing where reinforcements could make their way in and out of the valley. If these points were secured, Lutsk would have to be abandoned. The preliminary bombardment of Lutsk began on the night of June the 4th, and continued until 9 o'clock the following morning. 
a crown of crimson flame peeked over the ridge, as batteries of 155 and 110mm howitzers roared to life. Austrian sentries could see the hue snake along the crest, growing brighter and more terrifying. On the receiving end, Habsburg defenders recalled the terrific display. Quote, A firestorm of unprecedented intensity crackled along the lines, stirring up thick yellow dust and sand clouds that hung over the field. End quote. Like in the south, the artillery was just the first part. It stunned the defenders, cut communications, and destroyed rail lines. It was the infantry who delivered the fatal blow. One month prior to the offensive, 8th Army had removed some 75,000 cubic meters of earth in preparation. Kaladin's troops were just 45 paces from the Austrian lines. Once the barrage lifted, the waiting infantry rushed forward, catching Ferdinand's troops totally off guard. Russian infantry were waiting on the parapet when the Austrians left their dugouts. The 4th Army under Ferdinand folded instantly. The 70th Infantry Division lost over half its strength before noon, but this was just the beginning. Other regiments simply vanished in the Russian wave. The 40th Infantry lost 4,730 men from 5,000, while the 82nd Regiment took 4,700 casualties from 5,300. Those behind the front lines simply turned and fled. Tales of Habsburg officers abandoning their men were widely reported. The 4th Army had practically disintegrated. Owing to the north-south rail lines, the retreat was chaotic and every man for himself. Panicked soldiers gutted themselves on their own razor wire and left depots of food and shell to the Russian advance. Slav units threw down their rifles and greeted the Russians with open arms. Others took shelter in nearby woods or in the cellars of local villagers. By 10 o'clock that evening, under a driving rain, the remaining Austrian units fled west. To the residents of Galicia, the sight of a shattered Habsburg army was deeply troubling. A Polish landowner, a few kilometers east of Lutsk, recalled the excitement and fear of that June evening. Quote, Small groups of inhabitants were standing about the streets, commenting on the news. Artillery and ammunitions were at full speed passing through the town for the front. A few regiments of infantry marched through at night. The horizon was red with the glow of fires. For the third time, our poor villages were burning. Whatever had survived the previous battles was given up to the flames. No one slept that night. In the morning, the first military transports passed through the town. The retreat had begun. Hungarian soldiers quietly smoked their pipes. There was no way for us to understand one another. Only one of them, who knew a few German words, explained. Russians. Strong, strong, a great mass. End quote. By the dawn of June 7th, remnants of the 4th Army had been ejected, taking residence in previously abandoned positions west of the river. By doing so, they had bought themselves a small window. The evening showers had turned the roads into morass. Fernhand was relieved to report a partial retreat, but what he failed to mention was that it was the total collapse of the line which aided his escape. Paradoxically, the Russians were just as shocked as the Austrians were. Kaladin had not anticipated a breakthrough so quickly and was reluctant to press after. Cossack riders, skilled horsemen known for their ferociousness in battle, rode ahead and rounded up thousands of Habsburg stragglers, who told their captors of the disorder unfolding in their lines. Encouraged by the news, Brusilov telephoned the 8th Army General and encouraged him to press the advance. In two days, the Russians had seized 50,000 prisoners and 77 guns. That afternoon, Kaladin converged on the shattered 4th Army. In Ferdinand's defense, the battlefield was well chosen. The 4th Army, 
reduced to just 54% full strength, was wedged northwest of the stair. This hub oversaw nine bridges which had been reinforced with two lines of bunkers and numerous artillery batteries. When the Russian vanguard hit the breach, it was immediately pinned down by accurate fire from the redoubts. However, information obtained from the Austrian prisoners had proven beneficial. Again, the Russian advance was so quick that while the first wave was slowed, the second, third, and fourth were able to penetrate the enfilade and storm the position. With additional guns, shell, and gas attacks, Kaladin was able to surround the delta and form a salient. Counterfire from the Russian howitzers eviscerated the Austrian position. By the evening of June 7th, 4th Army had given up 75 kilometers of territory, and a 20-kilometer wide gap had been torn in the line. The beleaguered Alexander von Linsingen could do little but watch as the Galician front began to collapse. The Russian breakthroughs near Chernowitz and Lutsk were cutting through the Austrians like butter. At the current rate of advance, Brusilov could pinch off the remaining armies and press towards Lemberg. If the Russians took Lemberg, then Galicia might be lost altogether. On the 6th of June, Linsingen had had enough, and telephoned Conrad, lecturing him on the lack of decisiveness within army leadership. The Austrian chief, who now fully recognized the gravity of the situation, responded by sacking Archduke Ferdinand, the first time a Habsburg heir had been replaced in mid-battle. Reinforcing Linsingen's criticism came two days later, when Brusilov again smashed the Austrians in Bukovina. The badly mauled 7th Army began to retreat into the Carpathian foothills. The sheer intensity and abruptness of Brusilov's offensive dealt the Central Powers a devastating blow, sparking their greatest interwar crisis since the Marne of 1914. Conrad, alerted to the peril his nation now faced, was in full scramble mode. On the 6th of June, he telegraphed Falkenhayn, requesting German reinforcements to beef up the shattered front. Falkenhayn was in no mood to talk, and leveraged the request by insisting Austrian troops in Italy be redeployed before German assistance was granted. As you'll recall from episode 36, Conrad had weakened the Galician sector in preparation for the Alpine expedition. Although Falkenhayn had done the same for Verdun, the fact that the collapse occurred in an Austro-Hungarian sector gave Falkenhayn the upper hand. Conrad was forced to cede. Two days later, on June the 8th, he traveled to Berlin to discuss the matter personally with Falkenhayn, having written that the decision of the world war hung in the balance. Habsburg officials, including the ambassador, claimed Conrad's visit was that of a bad schoolboy facing the reproaches of a teacher, and Falkenhayn probably would have made him crawl in through the dog door if one had been installed. Remarkably, Conrad was not the least bit humbled. Instead of stroking Falkenhayn's ego, he countermined the German strategy. He began by telling Falkenhayn that the offensive in Trentino held greater promise than Verdun. He insisted Falkenhayn suspend the Meuse campaign and redeploy German troops to Italy, replacing Austro-Hungarian forces, which could then be moved to Galicia. Now, Falkenhayn was not known for his sense of humor, and he maintained that record admirably. However, he did let Conrad know what he thought of his suggestion. Ignoring that by doing so would put Germany at war with Italy, Falkenhayn let his rage boil over, and he spent the next several minutes screaming at the Austrian chief, belittling him for his generalship and poor quality of Habsburg troops. Although Conrad was not accustomed to being spoken to in this way, Falkenhayn did offer a way out. He laid out his counterproposal, one which he bolded as non-negotiable. Abandon the Italian invasion and move all available units to Galicia. In exchange, Falkenhayn promised to send four divisions from Verdun. Then he added a caveat. 
the Austro-Hungarian army must submit itself to German leadership. Falkenhayn ended the meeting with a warning. Either accept those terms or watch the empire fall. While this threat was most likely a bluff, both men knew the consequences of an Austrian collapse, the comments stung Conrad. Being the staunch monarchist that he was, this was a nightmare situation. Conrad had pushed for war in hopes of strengthening the dual monarchy, and had fought tooth and nail to maintain her independence from German oversight. Now it was either be absorbed by Germany or crushed by Russia. Conrad had no choice but to agree with Falkenhayn's proposal, and in the process surrendered his last shred of dignity. Essentially, Conrad faced the same crisis he had in 1914. The Carpathian Mountains were the only thing keeping the Russians from storming into Hungary. This was a bitter humiliation for Conrad. He later wrote he would rather receive ten slaps to the face than have to beg the Germans for help again. An Austrian staff officer put it more bluntly, quote, We are now totally and completely under the thumb of the Germans. End quote. The impact of this decision sent tremors back to Vienna and Budapest. The defeat at Lusk, for all intensive purposes, marked the end of Austria-Hungary as a great and independent power. Politicians in Vienna, who had been powerless to stop Conrad under the war surveillance program, began to circle. The Austrian ambassador in Berlin warned Kaiser Wilhelm that the dual monarchy was at a threshold, and that its present leaders were, and I quote, reduced to be the grave diggers of the old Austria, and to shovel the grave for the new Austria-Hungary. It was dire times indeed. In the following days, there was rapid movement throughout the eastern theaters. On June 7th, Falkenhayn redeployed four divisions from the west, and two days later, Conrad officially suspended the Trentino campaign. His dream of eliminating Italy died with a phone call. While it is hard to sympathize with Conrad, what happened next served to exasperate the situation. It took just five days for Falkenhayn's reinforcements to arrive, where they were coalescing northwest of Lutsk, near the railway junction at Koval. The Russians would need Koval to press the attack further, so it was an obvious choice for Linzingen to prepare his counterattack. But on the other side of the line, the Russians were running into problems. While the breakthroughs in the north and south had produced great success, they had come at a high cost. On average, they had sustained 6,000 casualties per day since June 4th. Their artillery had fired almost non-stop, warping barrels and expending most of their shell reserve. Brusilov had done his duty. His armies had disrupted the enemy and caused panic in their leadership. In order to refill ranks and store, Brusilov called a halt to the offensive on the 14th of June. If you'll recall, the 14th of June was an important date. It marked the day when the armies of Everett and Kuropatkin were to attack north of the Pripyat. Except they didn't. Because they had switched objectives at the last possible minute, choosing to attack at Pinsk instead of into Lithuania, the northern armies had nothing to go from. The area surrounding Pinsk was similar to that of Lake Narach, predominantly marsh, covered with thick overgrowth with only one serviceable road in the area. Why Everett and Kuropatkin chose this as an axis is quite frankly unanswerable. But a possible explanation is that they knew the weather there was unreliable, allowing them to delay the attack time and time again. Alexeyev had heard nothing but excuses from the two commanders and had grown exhausted. Rightly so, Brusilov seethed at the delay. The northern attack was pushed back another four days, slated now for June the 18th. But this additional week had given the Central Powers sufficient time to dig in and reorganize. As the gears turned for the Austro-Germans, the Russians sat waiting, 
the southwest front hung in limbo. Then, on the 18th of June, word arrived that the northern attack was not only delayed, but permanently suspended. Brusilov's successes in the south had made imaginations at Stavka run wild. Visions of a Russian army crossing the Carpathians and storming Hungary was too tantalizing. Alexeyev had decided that since Brusilov had done so well, the southwestern front should be given priority. Most commanders would have loved this, but remember, this was the exact opposite to what was established back in April. Evert, Kuropatkin, and their 750,000 troops were released from their obligation. Needless to say, Brusilov went ballistic. He had no plans for a long offensive, It was now expected to continue without any kind of framework. Writing afterwards, he gave the following assessment. Quote, I was well aware the Tsar bore no guilt, because he was an amateur in military affairs. Alexeyev grasped very well, though, how criminally Everett and Kiropatkin conducted themselves. Had another military man stood as supreme commander, Everett would have been dismissed without delay, and Kiropatkin never would have found a place in an active army. End quote. For Brusilov and his staff officers, this abandonment was flat-out treason. Furthermore, it had repercussions outside Russia, particularly for the French and British, who were equally speechless. Haig, Joff, and Co. were impressed by Brusilov's victory. It was proof that Russia had rebounded from previous disasters, and now had an officer corps capable of running a modern war machine. The only problem was that these victories were not ranged against the Germans. Everett and Kiropatkin outnumbered the Germans 3-1 to one respectively, yet had not inflicted a single casualty since Lake Narach. With Verdun and the start date for the Somme offensive inching ever closer, Allied commanders were growing restless. This stopgap presents a major turning point in the operation. Nicholas and Alexeyev felt they had made the right choice. Brusilov had indeed discovered a winning formula, and they felt it was best to give the Southwest Army Group all the guns and manpower it needed. But remember, Brusilov had not planned for this. His operation was based on limited objectives and had budgeted for about a week's offensive. The continued postponements and then abandonment of the northern attack was akin to leaving him high and dry, faced with an enemy force increasing by the day. As a sign of appreciation, Stavka decided to send Brusilov an additional army. The third army had been stationed just north of the Pripyat, it was originally attached to Everett's northwestern front. While Brusilov waited for the non-existent northern attack, the Central Powers had been hard at work. The four German divisions from Verdun had arrived at Koval on the 12th of June, and were immediately sent east to buttress the dilapidated 4th Army. Since Lusk, 4th Army had been reduced from 110,000 men to just 18,000. Linzingen had wanted to organize an immediate counterattack, but had difficulty finding the officers. Many phoned in sick, or just never showed up. Missing its leadership, most of 4th Army's rank and file had simply surrendered. Falkenhayn was incensed when he discovered that more rifles and artillery had been captured than men, a sure sign that morale was all but drained. After the ineffective Ferdinand was shown the door, a Hungarian general, Karl von Turvanovsky, was appointed in his place. Turvanovsky was known for his hot temper, and had been chosen by Conrad to be a pin in the German side, a fly in Falkenhayn's ointment, so to speak. He was a firebrand, and Conrad knew he would argue, rattle, and piss off the Germans to defend Habsburg interests. Turvanovsky, who shared a striking resemblance to Charles Mangin at Verdun, had quickly reorganized 4th Army as best he could. With reinforcements heading into Lindzigan's army group, 
Chervinaski was able to shorten his front and strengthen his depth of defense. The following day, the 16th of June, Brusilov ordered the attack on Koval. Using the fresh, newly arrived 3rd Army, the Russians hit just north of the city. This time, however, the defenders were ready. Since the 3rd Army were not Brusilov's men, they were not versed in his tactics, and ran smack into the Verdun-baptized divisions. Submerged razor wire snagged the attackers as they made their way forward, staggering the flow of advance. A miniature version of Lake Narach soon played out, resulting in an absolute rout. 7,000 Russians fell to just 150 German. Meanwhile, to the south, renewed Russian attacks against the Austrian positions were much better. Simultaneous attacks from Sakharov, Serbachev, and Nechesky drove deeper into Habsburg lines. In Bukovina, a collapse of an Austrian bridgehead across the Prut on the 17th resulted in 15,000 men falling into captivity. Remarkably, the Russian corps which took the bridge reported just one wounded man. Demoralization among the Habsburgs was at a high point. Witnesses reported that gunners had fled the scene, leaving infantry to fend for themselves. The Austrian 7th retreated in opposite directions. 15,000 fled south, while another 10,000 went west. This time, however, Brusilov erred on the side of caution. Casualties among the 3rd and 8th armies in the north were staggering. By the 19th of June, Kaladin had lost 285,000 men killed or wounded, and at least half of its manpower were raw, untested recruits. Instead of pressing forward in pursuit, Brusilov ordered the offensive to stall again on the 24th of June. Although reduced in scale, the fighting in Galicia would flare up throughout the week. Counterattacks from Blinzingen's army group took place on the 20th, 21st, and again on the 30th. But Austro-German troops found the Russians had pulled back to better defensive positions, sacrificing territory for better supply connectivity. But it became clear to Linzingen and Brusilov that as more reinforcements and shell made their way forward, the chance of a breakthrough dwindled. Unwilling to gamble with what little reserves remained, the opposing generals decided to wait and rest before pressing forward. While Koval remained in Austro-German hands, its retention came at a high price. It sent the dual monarchy into a spiral of disrepair. While the details paint a much different picture, the fact that its defense involved German troops gave Falkenhayn all the bragging rights. He was keen to point out that German troops eviscerated the Third Army, while the Austrians fled in the south. Conrad, however, was completely uncongratulatory. As the situation stabilized, Conrad's spirits soared. Incredibly, he chalked the losses in Bukovina and Lutsk to bad luck and poor decision-making among his subordinates. Meeting with the War Council in Vienna at the end of June, Conrad spoke of the defeats as if they were beyond his control. The Russian threat had been contained, and things could resume as planned. But behind Conrad's aleatoric defense, there were some uncomfortable glances. The governments of Vienna and Budapest were rightly disturbed about what transpired. On the 20th of June, the foreign minister, Stefan Burian, had told Franz Joseph that he had lost all faith in Conrad's leadership. Although Koval had been retained, Russian success in Bukovina remained unchecked. Burian feared that the Russians would keep coming again and again until the monarchy was ground to dust. The foreign minister's suspicions were justified. On the 18th, Conrad suggested that the combined armies could defeat Brusilov in a massive flanking maneuver north of the Pripyat. How this would be achieved was of course anyone's guess, but it goes to show how little he grasped the situation. Furthermore, he beamed at the possibility of resuming the Italian offensive alongside German troops. Not surprisingly, Falkenhayn was not the least bit interested. For the German chief, the eastern threat had been negated, and besides, 
he now had another issue on his plate. Beginning on the 24th of June, the Anglo-French armies began their preliminary bombardment on the Somme. Falkenhayn had been expecting this attack since February, and he was not about to let the Russians or Austrians distract him from the coming blow. Falkenhayn's indifference, mixed with Conrad's eccentricity, created a dangerous atmosphere. Habsburg diplomats had fessed up to the real truth, that without German assistance, their army was ineffective. Her bankers already owed Berlin 2.5 billion marks, and were borrowing at least 100 million per month. Conrad's attitude was becoming a source of national embarrassment, that, if left unchecked, would lead the nation to disaster. A pro-German sentiment began to fester in the twin capitals. Conrad was accused of lacking seriousness, thoroughness, and especially responsibility. The most deadly broadside came from the foreign ministry, arguing that Conrad's war was based on fantasies and wishful thinking. This sentiment was later echoed by the ambassador in Berlin. In a meeting with the chancellor, Betham Holwig, the ambassador's resentment was made clear. Quote, he develops beautiful theoretical plans. He lacks the forces, the requisite familiarity with actual conditions at the front, and most importantly, any and all personal knowledge of the area in order to enact the plans. Quote. The Austro-Hungarians saw only one way out, to fold their armed forces under German leadership. Falkenhayn's strategy of bolstering the Austro-Hungarians with German officers and troops had begun in earnest by late June. Alexander von Linsingen received unambiguous authority over all troops in Galicia, while Hans von Secht, the impeccably dressed embodiment of Prussian military professionalism, took over the deflated 7th Army in Bukovina. While still technically Habsburg, training regimes, strategy and operations would be the sovereignty of German officers. This process did not happen overnight and would take until September 1916 for things to get rounded out. But for all intents and purposes, the Austrian army was only as good as the German troops which joined them. As Norman Stone writes, the Austrian army survived now by the grace of the Prussian sergeant major. The Brusilov offensive was not over. It will erupt again in early July and continue on until late September, so we're not finished talking about it quite yet. However, as is our plan with Verdun, we'll be coming in and out of the battle to cover events elsewhere. Speaking of Verdun, we're going to head back there next week. At the same time the Russians stormed into Galicia, the Germans were retaking the offensive. French efforts to retake Fort Douaumont had failed, encouraging Falkenhayn and the Crown Prince Wilhelm to press again on the west bank of the Meuse. Their target was Fort Vaux, part of Operation Makeup, which began on the 31st of May. The fighting in and around Fort Vaux was the apex of the German advance and represents a crisis for the French army. Verdun was about to enter its deadliest phase. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbeam.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated. So if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. There are a number of ways to support the show. The first is by making a donation through our website. This will help cover the cost of acquiring sources and ensure the show delivers the most accurate and up-to-date research available. Or you can look us up on iTunes and leave a five-star review. iTunes charts their podcasts based on user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 44 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.